You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good morning. All right. Thank you all for getting up bright and early to be here. Uh, folks were worrying at about quarter past eight when there was nobody here. <laughs> but you all came in in a rush at the end. So thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, my purpose this, uh, this weekend has been to try and talk to you about Genesis and um, explain why Genesis is of foundational importance to our understanding of the whole Bible and the whole Christian life. And, uh, you know, one of the, the big questions that we would have would be the first topic that I'm going to talk about, which is, um, well, actually, how old is the earth? And I'll go into that in a, in a moment or two. But just before we do that, let me just try and tell you a little bit about the Mount St. Helens Creation Center. Now, I'm going to tell you about Mount St. Helens itself later today, but I'll just tell you a little bit about the uh, the actual center. There's the mountain. Well, the center itself is in downtown Castle Rock. There it is. And uh, we, we hold a number of events there. This particular event was at the time of the total eclipse of the sun in August. August um, I think it was 2018, wasn't it? I can't remember now. I've slept since then. But um, we, uh, a lot of people ga- gathered together to watch the, um, uh, the sun, uh, the total eclipse of the sun. There is another total eclipse of the sun coming up in the next year or two. Um, so we were prepared for that. You can see we have a telescope there, and it was, we were back projecting it onto a screen. So when the next total eclipse of the sun comes up, please remember that there are people around, as there were then, selling... Uh, so-called eye protectors that you were supposed to be able to look through, to look through directly at the sun. Most of those were not good enough, and people can hurt their eyes. Now, if you're, if you're someone who's uh, really good at this sort of thing, like Dr. Lyle is, then, you know, you would have the technology that can work with that. But most of us would not. And uh, the sort of things that they would sell cheaply on Amazon and eBay and things like that will not work, and you could permanently damage your eyes. So the only safe way for most people to look at this is to either use a projector, or you can even use a card with a pin in it, and you back project things. And we were watching that on the screen, on the, the screen, which was actually just a large piece of cardboard pinned to the, uh, the wall. So when people come to the center, I like to tell them a little bit about the volcano, and then we'll take them out to have a look in the area. And uh, a number, there are a number of excursions that we do. With, uh, these, uh, these people are on the south side of the volcano, crossing the rope suspension bridge across the Lava Canyon, which is great fun. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that last year because I've been telling people for a few years how safe that uh, bridge is, and last year it broke. <laughs> so we couldn't take people across. And I'm a little bit worried now this year if they've, if they've mended it, whether it's... <laughs> I've been saying, you know, it's perfectly okay. If it takes my weight, you'll be all right. Anyone can go across, but uh, there we go. On the east side, the east side is the only place where you can get to Spirit Lake. Um, 
which is uh, the the um, the lake that was sort of completely devastated by the eruption. All the water of the lake was pushed out, and then came back again in a wave, bringing lots of trees with it that had been knocked down by the force of the eruption. So there are a lot of you can see logs there in the picture uh, that we had to climb over to get to the banks of the lake. Uh, most uh, people go around the west side of the volcano. That's the most popular the t- uh, tourist area. And uh, so that's what that group are doing there. And we're walking around a trail around what's called the hummocks. And the hummocks is basically the top of the landslide. So 41 years ago, those people, if they were standing where they are there in that picture, would have been floating 600 feet up in the air. And that's, a, that's a landscape that simply didn't exist uh, 41 years ago. So the Mount St. Helens Creation Center is very easy to find. You just get on uh, I-5 and you'll turn off at exit 49. You'll see the signs pointing to Mount St. Helens that way towards the east, so you instead go west, and it's just a couple of blocks around there. There's a Baptist church, and then uh, the Creation Center is next to it. And you can recognize it because we do have signs uh, that show the Creation Center there. Okay. So... We're going to talk about how old the Earth is now. Um, there was a time when we used to tell people to, you know, please uh, turn your phone off when uh, uh, these sort of talks are on, and I discovered that that's not actually a good idea. I remember it was actually a Sunday where I was preaching, and I could see uh, my youngest daughter in the uh, congregation, and her boyfriend sat next to her, who is now her husband, and uh, they were both playing with the phones. And it really got me angry. You know, I'm afraid I didn't have very much grace on that, that occasion. I was fuming as I was going through this sermon. And then at the end of it, I took them on one side, you know, to chastise them. And before I could say anything, um, my now son-in-law asked me some very pertinent theological questions about what I'd just said because he'd been researching them in his online Bible and things, and uh, doing, he'd been a Berean. So uh, I now never tell anyone to turn the phones off. So if you, uh, if you have that, and uh, I've noticed that many young people do actually like to uh, um, tweet various comments from uh, talks as it's going on. So I'm quite happy if you do that. If you want to tweet things, here are some suggested hashtags for you. MSHCC for Mount St. Helens Creation Center, or just how old is the earth for my talk. You might want to tweet that or send it through Instagram or whatever you do with it, okay? If you don't understand what I've just said there, by the way, just <laughs> ask, ask, your grandpa, ask your grandchildren. And, uh, okay. <laughs> well, it does work, and it's a good thing to do. And I have got my phone here because I know that in this church you tend to like to use the New American Standard version of the Bible, which is a great version. I don't happen to have a paper version of it myself, but I got it here. So that's why my phone is there. Okay, I'm not I'm not tweeting anyone. <laughs> but if anyone asks me any difficult questions, I need to look them up in Scripture. I'm going to look them up uh, there. Okay. Right, how old is the earth? Many people think that this is a fixed question. The answer has already been given because the answer has been given by science. Okay, we ought to think about logical fallacies straight away right from the get-go because many people will use phrases like science has proved this. Well, I'm afraid you've got a different definition of science. And I, you know, 
This might be a theological fallacy itself, what I'm about to say. It's a bit of an argument from authority. But I did spend 20 years as a science teacher, so I've educated people in science. I've written on how to educate people in science. I have a master's degree in science education, so I think I know about how to explain the what science actually is. And I can tell you the one thing science is not is science is definitely not something that proves anything. That is not what science is. In math, you can prove things, not in science. You prove nothing in science. Science is a process. It is a process by which you try to explain things based on the evidence that you have here and now. You do the experiments here and now in the present. And you may make some suppositions that based on that evidence and based on extrapolation, you may think that certain things have happened, but that is not proof. That is not proof. I'm not saying that you always require physical proof. In fact, there are many times you shouldn't ask for physical proof, just like Thomas shouldn't have asked for physical proof when he said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus has risen till I see the, the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side. Um, but science is about looking at the evidence here and now, the measurements here and now, and making interpretations of them. Science changes. People develop new scientific models and new scientific theories. And one thing you are not going to be able to do is directly measure something in the past. You see, when you dig up a bone, it doesn't come with a date tag attached to it. It does not come with a date tag attached to it. And there is this impression among many people particularly because you get this impression from the media with popular science documentaries, which are often not as scientific as they like to pretend they are, you get this impression that having dug something up, you can tell instantly how old it is. That there is something about it that an expert who has been wearing a white coat for 20 years can therefore look at it and say, oh yes, this is 65 million years old. Now, back in uh, England, we have a type of candy that you can buy in certain seaside resorts, which they call rock. This was invented in a, sea a large seaside resort in the northwest of England called Blackpool. Has anyone visited England and ever visited Blackpool? Blackpool is basically the Las Vegas of England. And it's an old Victorian seaside resort. Uh, and they sell this this candy called rock. And it's a stick. It's about that long and about sort of that wide. It's a, it's a cylinder. It's a stick. It's a round stick. And you look at the end of it, and it's got the word Blackpool in it. And you break it in half, and it's still got the word Blackpool in it. Because the word Blackpool is stamped all the way through this long stick. It's fascinating the way they measure it, but that would be a bunny trail to go off on that. The point is... Many people think that dinosaur bones are like that. You take a dinosaur bone, you crack it open. Oh, yes, it says there, 65 million years. Trust me, that is not how it works. That is definitely not how it works. I will try and explain to you how it works in a moment. But as Christians, we need to base all our thinking on Scripture. All our thinking should be based on Scripture. 
We've already seen that, that, that uh, as, I'm, as I'm trying to comment, you cannot make a direct scientific measurement on the age of a bone. And what I'm going to show you is that dating the age of bones is actually, actually involves a number of assumptions. And those assumptions are not scientifically provable. They are, in fact, your starting points. Now, it is okay to have starting points. You have to have starting points. And a lot of people don't realize that you have to have starting points. Let me try and remind you of some. You're going to hate me for this, but do you all remember your high school math lessons? Okay. Some of you are still suffering them, I know. I can see some of the young people nodding and sort of putting their heads on the desk. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a science, a math problem to work out. But you've got two, say you've got two lines that are parallel, okay? Two lines are parallel. When do those two lines join? If you could carry those lines on and on for a long way, how far is it before those lines join if they are parallel lines? Never. But how do you prove that? The answer is, in fact, that you don't. It's one, it's one of the, uh, basic axioms of geometry. Have you come across the, the phrase Euclid's axioms? Anyone been taught about Euclid's axioms? I perhaps shouldn't have gone on this because I can't remember what they all are, but I'll tell you that there are a number of axioms that are not provable. Everything else in math you, you can prove based on those axioms, if those axioms were true. Another axiom, for example, is the angles of a triangle. If you were to take all the angles of a triangle and add them up, what do they come to? 180 degrees. How do you prove it? And I know some people say, oh, you prove it by drawing a triangle, tearing the corners off and putting them together, and you get a straight line. That's not a proof. How do you know it's perfectly straight? How do you know it's perfectly straight? You don't, and it is, in fact, unprovable. But it's something that you use as a basis for proving other things. You can prove other things based on that. Okay, here's what I'm telling you. You cannot prove something about the age of anything unless you have got axioms or assumptions. The point is that your assumptions may be wrong. And if your assumptions disagree with the Bible, they definitely are wrong. Because the one axiom that we should have over everything else is that the Bible is true. And it's no good saying, well, the Bible's true for this, but this hasn't got anything to do with the Bible. Therefore, it doesn't matter if we don't use it. No, the Bible claims to be the ultimate authority over everything. It doesn't mean it speaks directly on everything. We've mentioned this yesterday. But it does mean that where it touches on those matters, it speaks the truth. Our thinking in every area needs to be governed by the Bible. Every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. The Bible, we said yesterday, is the history book of the universe. So everything it contains is true. And that should be our starting point. And it is our starting point with this topic too, the topic of um, uh, how old the earth is. Okay, let me give you now a little test, a visual test. I'm going to show you some pictures. Here they are, of pictures of four animals. Uh, a is a Canada goose. Um... B, what, what's B? What's that, what's that animal called? What's, what's the name of that animal? Animal B. 
Do you know? Do you know what that animal's called? I'll tell you what he's called. He's called Terry. Okay. You might have been trying to think of another name, but he's called Terry. He's Terry the Triceratops. Okay. He's a Triceratops. Uh, he's a Triceratops because he's got three horns from the Greek, tri, uh, three, sera, horns, tops. I don't know. Uh, on three horns on the top of his head. Okay. Hey, that's, that's what he probably is. He's the Greek expert. Is that right? Uh, that must be right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, C is Bob the fish. Okay. Um, I know he's called Bob, by the way. You, you're familiar with this, aren't you? All fish are called Bob. You know that, don't you? This is a fact. If you've got a fish in a tank at home and you're giving him a different name, sorry, that's wrong. He's called Bob. Or she's called Bob. It's, it's the, it's the way it is. All fish are called Bob. I can prove that to you because you can see them swimming around in a tank talking to each other saying, Bob, Bob, Bob. <laughs> My jokes will not get any better than that, okay? <laughs> you may as well humor me by laughing. D, I suppose that's probably, what, the dolphin or porpoise or something like that, isn't it? Now, of course, you know that there was a book written some years ago where it, uh, one, one Christian writer said that we should live like that. Uh, we should follow them as our example. Uh, the book was called The Porpoise Driven Life. <laughs> okay, I said my jokes won't get any better. Okay, here's the question then. Having looked at all those four animals, which type of animal has been on earth the longest? Now think about that. Which type of those animals has been on earth the longest? Who thinks it's A? No one. Who thinks it's B, the triceratops? Ooh, everyone's worried about putting their hands up. Who thinks it's C? Who thinks it's D? A couple of people. Who thinks it's none of those answers? One person who is in fact correct. <laughs> and uh, who doesn't like putting the hands up? <laughs> Can I pick on the young man at the back there who put his hand up to say, you were correct that it's not of those answers. Do you know what the answer actually is, looking at those? Which of those has been on the earth the longest? Don't worry. Okay, you were right, but don't worry. Okay, let's try one other question based on this. If you went into any public school and asked the majority of students in that public school and also their teachers, what would they say is the, uh, has been on the earth the longest? Which type of animal would they say has been on the earth the longest? Wouldn't they say B? Most of them would say B, because they're, they're not thinking about uh, the supposed evolution of fish and things like that, but they, they would say B, Triceratops, because dinosaurs are not around today, as far as we know. I suspect they're probably extinct. I can't prove that. I keep hearing rumors about maybe there's certain dinosaurs in certain parts of the world. I'm very skeptical of them. I've got to admit, I'm a skeptical creationist, but... Um, it could be. I cannot prove there aren't any. I can't prove that negative. Okay, B is the one most people think of because it's a dinosaur. Those people who know a little bit more evolutionary theory might say C because they would say ultimately the dinosaurs evolved from the fish. But those people who actually read the Bible would say that B is the youngest one. And the other three are all equally the oldest ones. 
that have been on the earth the longest. Why? Because sea creatures and flying creatures were created on day five of the creation week, whereas a, a dinosaur, being a land animal, was created on day six. You got that? That's the biblical answer. And now you're going to have to decide whether you trust the Bible or not. Because here you've got to, you know, if you are someone who says you are a Christian, but you're going to believe in millions of years and in evolution, you have come up with an answer that is completely opposed to what the Bible teaches. And we've already seen yesterday that it really does matter. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ itself depends on your uh, your opinions on these early chapters of the Bible. So the answer is A, C, and D have been on the earth the longest, created on day five. Land animals, including dinosaurs, created on day six. And it's no good saying to me, well, the word dinosaur doesn't appear in the Bible. Of course it doesn't. Because uh, our main English translation of the Bible, the King James Version, was translated in 1611. And the word dinosaur wasn't invented until the year 1841, 230 years later. So when the King James Version translators were doing their job of translating the Bible into English, they didn't have the word dinosaur to use to translate the Bible. That, by the way, is the same reason why the word email doesn't appear in the Bible. Paul's second email to the Corinthians. See what large fonts I use. (laughs) But what you will get in the popular media and in textbooks is the phrase millions of years. Everything is to do in millions of years. This rock is millions of years. This dinosaur fossil is millions of years. Uh, This planet is millions of years. Everything is millions and millions of years. So the phrase millions of years is coming at you all over the place to the extent that you think it's factual. But I'm telling you that the Bible tells us that God made the world in just six days a few thousand years ago. Six thousand years ago. Not exactly six thousand years ago, but as I will show you, it could not even have been as much as 7,000 years. I know there are some people who call themselves young earth creationists and say the earth is up to 10,000 years old. Sorry, you have added 4,000 years to the Bible if you say that. The earth is not 10,000 years old. It is 6,000 years old. It's a bit more than 6,000 years old, but not much. You see, when people start to take man's ideas, evolutionary ideas, and try to mix them with the Bible, they're not going to mix perfectly. Guess which one they always change. They never seem to change the evolutionary theory, do they? It's the Bible out of which they cut things out in order to make things work and to marry them together. So, how do we measure the age of the earth? Well, what we do is... What scientists do is they find a scientific process that is changing and they measure the rate of that change. And then they have to make some assumptions that maybe that rate of change has not itself changed in the past so they can try and extrapolate ages back. And there are a large number of physical processes that they could use a huge number of physical processes that they could use, things that are changing, slow chemical reactions, slow physical processes, and they can measure them and try and work out ages. But here's the problem. 
because out of the hundreds of physical processes and chemical processes that they could use, the overwhelming majority of them cannot give you the millions and billions of years that they claim exist on the earth. And they don't tell you that in your science textbooks in schools. They only pick a small number of physical processes that do give the answers millions of years. And I'm going to explain to you why they give the answers millions of years. But the overwhelming majority do not. For example, if you measure the rate at which helium is is being lost from the atmosphere, you will find that the Earth's atmosphere could not be older than 300,000 years. Now, I'm not telling you that the Earth's atmosphere is 300,000 years. I'm telling you it could not be older than that. It could, of course, be younger than that. It could, for instance, be 6,000 years. You see what I'm saying? So just because I say that a physical process gives you an upper bound doesn't mean that I think that that upper bound is the actual age. I could prove, for example, that the spiral shape of galaxies... Galaxies have a spiral shape, don't they? They are spinning around. We can measure how fast they're spinning around. Did you know that if those galaxies had spun around for more than a million years, they would no longer be spirals? If the universe is older than one million years, there would be no spiral galaxies that you could see anywhere in the universe at all. That does not mean that I believe that the universe is a million years old. Do you see that? It could, however, be less than a million years. It could, for example, be um, 6,000 years. I hope you're understanding this. There are a small number, a small number of physical processes that do give answers of millions of years, and I'm going to reach those in, in a short while. But here's where I want you to do a rain check on these things. There are scientists in white coats who will tell you the earth is billions of years. Take my word for it. Because they wear smart white coats. Actually, when I was uh, uh, doing scientific research at university, my white coat was not white because it was a point of honor to have all the various stains from different chemical reactions on it. Okay. But, (laughs) be that as it may, men in white coats tell you that they have proved these things. Take my word for it. Should we take their word for it? They are fallible human beings. And if they're going to tell you something that's different from what the Bible says, then you need to accept what the Bible says. Now, have you heard of a gentleman called Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins is probably the world's best-known atheist. And he's a lot more well-known than your own homegrown atheist. You've got plenty of homegrown atheists here in the United States. Um... Richard Dawkins tends to be more well-known than those because he's got a British accent, and apparently British accents make you sound clever. (laughs) Once upon a time, he said, how do we know that the Earth is four and a half billion years old and that it orbits the sun that that nourishes it? Okay, I'm going to deal with that question, but I'm not actually going to answer it, not at the moment anyway. I'm going to deconstruct the question instead. Because what he's done there is, in his question, he has made two assumptions. And we better check those two assumptions. The two assumptions are that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, and secondly, that it orbits the sun that nourishes it. Let's uh, identify those two uh, statements. The Earth orbits the sun that nourishes it, and the Earth is four and a half billion years old. They are two separate statements. Not only are they two separate statements, but they are not of equal value. 
You see, the one on the left is a genuine scientific fact. How do we know that? Because we can do the measurements. You can, uh, you can check this out and you can work out and you can observe that it is in fact true that the earth is orbiting the sun that nourishes it. And there is nothing in the Bible that disagrees with that. And I do sometimes get people coming up to me at conferences saying, no, the earth is the center of the universe and it's flat. And I'm sorry, we're not going to go into that here, but I can refer you to some articles. It is simply not the case. The earth is round. It's not the center of the universe. It's probably near the center, but it is orbiting the sun. It is orbiting the sun. That's the way that God has made it to be. So that is a scientific fact. We can measure that in real time, here and now. So that is genuine science. The one on the right is not. It's someone's presupposition. The earth is four and a half billion years old because I do not have Doctor Who's TARDIS in order to go back in time and see this happen. And I love Doctor Who. It's a common thing among creation speakers. My friend Ken Ham, who uses an iPhone, <laughs> dreadful thing. But nevertheless, his iPhone has got a case which is in the shape of the TARDIS. Okay, and I like that. I would like a phone case that, like, that looks like the TARDIS. You wanted something else unusual about Ken. That just occurred to me just now. Okay, I just remembered that. But the Earth is four and a half billion years old. But you can only know that if you can directly measure it. So honestly, you could only know that scientifically if you did have the TARDIS and could go back and watch it happen. Okay? That's definitely the case. In actual fact, this uh, topic came up on a, ra- on a BBC radio program that I was taking part in and also Richard Dawkins was taking part in. And that was this particular point came up. There's an hourglass. Now, I'm going to have to exercise your imagination. Supposing there was an hourglass on this pulpit here, and that hourglass was working. Sand was going through the hourglass, so there was some sand around there. And I ask you the question, how can you calculate how long that hourglass has been there? You would need to take three measurements. Can anyone suggest to me what measurements you would want to take? Give me one measurement. What measurement would you want to take? There's an hourglass there, there's sand running through. What measurements are you going to want to take? Yes, sir. Yes, how much sand there is, for example, in the top, that would be one measurement. Also, maybe how much sand there is in the bottom. And one third thing, what would else would it be? Yeah. Sorry, I thought you had the hand up. Um, you want to know how fast the sand is going through there, wouldn't you? Those are the three things that you would need to measure. So let's say that there was five ounces of sand in the top and there was four ounces of sand in the bottom and we know that the sand is going through at the rate of 0.1 ounce per minute. Uh, Can you calculate how long that hourglass has been going? How long would it have been going? Can anyone do that sum in the head? God blank, you hate this. Mentioning math. How long has it been going? No one's brave enough to say. 40 minutes. You did that by multiplying the rate by the amount of sand in the bottom. Are you 100% sure that that hourglass has been going for 40 minutes? Can you prove that? Is that absolutely sure? No, it is not. It's not sure. 
That's how you do the calculation, because you've measured the amount of sand at the top, the amount of sand at the bottom, and the rate of the flow of sand, but you cannot be sure that the hourglass has been going for 40 minutes. Let me tell you why. How do you know that there was, uh, how do you know that the bottom of the hourglass was empty when I started the process? Maybe there was already some sand in it. Not only that, but maybe while you weren't watching, I took the hourglass down and put a bit more sand in it. I opened up the stop and put more sand in it. Not only that, but maybe again while you weren't looking, I took the stand off the pulpit and shook it to get more sand going through a bit faster. You can't prove that that hourglass has been going 40 minutes, even though that was a perfectly reasonable calculation to make. In other words, you made some assumptions, didn't you? You assumed that the that there was no sand in the bottom of the hourglass. That's the first assumption. Secondly, you assumed that no sand had ever been introduced or taken out of the hourglass during the process. And thirdly, you assumed that the rate of flow of sand was constant. Is that correct? Those are three assumptions. And if any one of those assumptions was wrong, your calculation was wrong. I wonder if you can see where I'm going. Because I'm now going to show you an exam, for, uh, an exam question from a textbook in uh, in England, but you get similar questions here in the United States. It's a question about uh, radioactive decay and how we measure the age of a rock. A rock sample, the proportion of uranium-238 atoms to lead-206 atoms, was found to be four to one. How old is the rock? They have plotted a decay curve using the half-life of uranium-238. Now, the half-life of uranium-238 is the time in which half of the uranium has changed into lead by a radioactive decay process. Half of the uranium has, has, has decayed. Now, it isn't linear. It's not quite as simple as the sand in the hourglass one. It's not a constant rate, but it is a measurable rate. It's an exponential decay curve. So that's why we use half-life, which is giving you a measure of the rate. And there you can see that half of the uranium would have disappeared in four and a half, uh, four and a half thousand million years. That's 4.5 billion years. Now, by the way, that half-life measurement is correct. And you have to understand the, half, the term half-life. Just because I'm telling you that the half-life of uranium definitely is four and a half billion years old does not mean that I believe the Earth is four and a half billion years old. And I want you to see why that's the case. I am telling you that if the Earth were four and a half billion years old, then half of the uranium that was in the Earth originally would have decayed. Does that make sense? It's a measurement, it's a statistical measurement. It is not a direct measurement of age. Half-life is not a measurement of age. Do you get that? Half-life is a measurement of rate of decay. Okay, so let's continue with the question. The question is asking if, if there's a 4 to 1 proportion of uranium-238, in other words, 80% of the rock, 80% of the... Um, uh, metals in the rock are uranium-238. How old is the rock? So you take 80%, you go along that curve, you cut down, and there you are. The rock is 1.5 billion years old. And that is how they prove that a rock is of particular age, by uranium-lead measurements. It's, called radio, it's a radiometric measurement system. Here's the problem. Just like the hourglass, they have made three assumptions. Here are their three assumptions. 
in order to do that calculation. First, they have assumed that the half-life of uranium has never changed. Let, let me put that on one side for a minute. Secondly, they've assumed that no lead was present in the original rock. Now, how do they know that? <clears throat> they have just said that they believe this rock to be 1.5 billion years old. So unless they've got Doctor Who's TARDIS and can go back and look at that rock when it was first formed, they have no idea whether there was any lead in the rock originally or not, have they? None whatsoever. There is no reason to suppose that rocks were formed with zero lead. That is actually pretty illogical when you think that lead is a particularly common element and a stable element. Why would there be no lead in any rock? Why do you assume that every single atom of lead that exists has come from the radioactive decay of materials like uranium? It simply does not make sense. And this is what you are taught in public schools, but it does not make sense. The third assumption is that nobody has ever added or removed lead from the rock. Well, the rock does not contain metallic lead. It contains compounds of lead. And from your high school chemistry, you should know that lead compounds are partially soluble. Not very soluble, but they are partially soluble in water. That's the main reason, why, by the way, why we no longer use lead pipes for plumbing. Because the water will dissolve some of the lead, poisoning the water. Okay? So, if a rock had been in place for 1.5 billion years... Who's to say that at some point it wasn't washed by water from a river or from the sea, uh, changing direction, and therefore some of the lead has been removed, or maybe some more lead has been washed in? In other words, you cannot possibly prove that no lead has ever been removed or taken from the rock. Are you tracking with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? You can see why this is similar to the hourglass problem. Going back to the first one, you might think, well, at least the half-life of lead has never changed. Well, yes, it has. And I can prove to you that, it's ha that it has by looking at zircon crystals. These tiny crystals contain uranium and lead. And they are doing precisely the same reaction. Now, the radioactive process by which a, a uranium-238 atom turns into lead is a 14-stage process. Eight of those stages releases a helium atom, actually releases an alpha particle, but that alpha particle is a helium nucleus and it can get electrons, it can become a helium atom. The other six involve giving out an electron or beta particle, so that's different. I'm not counting those. Eight stages for the production of uranium to lead produces a helium atom. In other words, for every... If all the lead, if all the lead had been formed from uranium, all of it, then there should be eight times as many helium atoms as there are lead atoms. Does that make sense? Okay? I'm not going to ask you to do complex maths here. I'm just wanting you to see there's a logic that we know how much helium should have been formed by this process. Now, I like helium. Helium is my favorite element. I can't speak highly enough of it. Again, this is the level of the jokes, okay? For every one atom of lead, you should have eight atoms of helium. Helium, you know, does some strange things because you're all used to helium because you've all had helium balloons, haven't you? 
And if you've had a party in here and you've had helium balloons in here and some little tyke has got a helium balloon, they're running around with it, they trip up and they let go of the string, what happens to the balloon? Two things happen, of course. One is that the balloon goes to the ceiling and the second thing is that the toddler breaks down in floods of tears and stamps the feet on the ground and is inconsolable, okay? Right. Happens to teenagers too sometimes, but they won't tell you that. So the balloon's up at the top there. And that's tough because nobody's got a long enough ladder to go and get it down. Does that balloon stay on the ceiling? No. A few days later, you find it's beginning to float down, don't you? And while Jim's preaching, you know, a balloon lands on his head. Because it floats down. Why? Because the helium has diffused through the wall of the balloon, hasn't it? And it's replaced with air. The helium doesn't stay there because helium has tiny atoms and those atoms can get between the atoms of the latex of which the balloon is made. Uh, because they can diffuse through. And we can measure that rate of diffusion. If we want to do a scientific experiment, we can measure how fast the helium diffuses through the balloon. It's, I'm not going to say how we'd do it, but you could if you had the right instruments to detect the helium. In principle, you could measure that rate of diffusion. Well, you can with these crystals. You can measure the rate of diffusion. And that's what people did with these crystals. They took crystals from different temperatures and they measured the rate of diffusion. Here's the problem. They couldn't measure the rate of diffusion directly. So what they did was they said, here's how many lead atoms there are in the crystal. Let's multiply that number by eight. That's how many helium atoms there should be. Now we can count how many helium atoms there actually still are in the crystal. And that's going to be less, isn't it? Because some of the helium is gone. So if we know how much helium has gone, then we can calculate the rate if, if we know how old the crystal is. But there's the problem. We have two different answers for how old the crystal is. One is an evolutionary answer and one is a creationist answer. The evolutionary answer is that the crystal is 1.5 billion years old. So we take the amount of helium and we divide it by 1.5 billion years and we've got that rate of diffusion. Then we take the same crystals, the same amount of helium, but we divide it by 6,000 years, which is the creationist answer, and we plot those things on the graph. So those there on the left, they're the same crystal calculated with an evolutionary and a creationist answer. Does that make sense? Second, you've got another crystal measured with a creationist and an evolutionist answer. Then we take some crystals that have definitely got a known amount of helium in and we deliberately heat them up to drive more helium off. And we measure the rate that that helium is driven off. And we will plot that on this graph. And one of three things could happen because these two answers are a fact of 100,000 different. So it could be that they knew that the actual measured experimental rates of diffusion fit with the evolutionary answer, or they might fit with the creationist answer, or they might fit with neither answer, in which case, you know, someone's got to think of some other idea. We maybe have to look in the Quran or something like that. Okay? Uh, So here are the measured rates of diffusion. There they are. I'm not saying that proves the Bible to be true, because I believed the Bible to be true before I saw that. But I'm saying that I'm not surprised that those answers have fitted with the biblical answer. There we have direct scientific experimentation to show that that rate of diffusion, which is caused by radioactive decay, fits with the creationist answer. But there's the problem. Those scientists who measured the age of that crystal to be 1.5 billion years were not idiots. They made assumptions. But in the case of the zircon crystal, 
We know that there must have been no lead or insignificant amounts of lead to begin with because of the way that zircons are formed. And, th- and the third assumption, we know that the helium could not have escaped by any other method. And lead couldn't have escaped any other method because they buried. So the only assumption that could have been wrong is the half-life. In other words, this experiment not only illustrates that the Bible is correct, but it also illustrates that the half-life of uranium must have changed in the past. That's the only possible scientific conclusion because that is the only way that serious scientists can measure accurately the rates of decay and using their assumptions get 1.5 billion years, whereas in fact the data fits with the 6,000 years. These are all genuine scientific experiments. And by the way, these were outsourced to evolutionary. Uh, this was done by, an organi- uh, by a, gr- a working group called the uh, RATE Group, Reacti- Radioactivity and the Age of the Earth. But they outsourced the experiments to people who were evolutionary. They didn't tell them what the final conclusions were going to be, but they, uh, they, re- uh, they outsourced these certain experiments, and these were compiled together. And that's where we get these, uh, these results from. So it is confirmation that the Bible is true. It's not proof the Bible's true. The Bible's true anyway. Right, many people then say, well, hold on a minute. Dinosaur bones have been dated by carbon-14 dating. No, they haven't. Most people do not understand what carbon-14 dating is. And I've heard science teachers in high school say this too. And they are wrong. Carbon dating could not possibly measure the age of bones, even if the age of bones was 65 billion years old. Let me explain why. Here's a textbook that says this. Now, I know that this is a 1986 edition. I ought to change this slide because I have checked it in a version published in 2010, and this passage is still in. Carbon-14 is often used to date fossils, it says. No, it isn't. Carbon-14 is never used to date fossils, never, ever. And I'll show you why. At the end of this passage, it says carbon-14 is used to date relatively young fossils. Not true. Uranium-238, with a half-life of 4.5 billion years, is used to date older fossils. Not true. Why is uranium not used? Because the uranium-lead process only happens in igneous rocks. Fossils never form in igneous rocks. Fossils are in sedimentary rocks, by definition, because a fossil has been laid down in sediment. And you cannot measure the ages of sedimentary rocks by radiometric dating methods. What they do is they measure the date of the igneous rock next to it and hope that it's the same. And as I've, as I've already shown you, their assumptions are wrong anyway. Okay, I'm not going to read through that uh, uh, thing at the moment because it was uh, it's saying more or less the same thing. But if I just pick this out here, it says, by comparing the amounts of carbon-14 and carbon-12 in a fossil, researchers can determine when the organism lived. No, they can't. And let me show you why. Okay, let me just show you why. Here's how carbon-14 is formed. It's formed by neutron bombardment of the atmosphere. A nitrogen-14 atom is hit by a neutron and becomes a carbon-14 atom. Carbon-14 will work chemically like any other carbon atom, but it's radioactive. So it will form carbon dioxide and it will be uh, brought into plants by photosynthesis. And while the plant is alive, it will be uh, getting rid of carbon-14 and bringing carbon-14 at the same rate. So the proportion of carbon-14 in that plant is going to be constant. Not only that, but animals will be eating the plants, so the amount of carbon-14 in the animal is constant all the time. But when the animal or the plant dies, uh, you'll find it strange to know this, but apparently dead animals do not eat anything. 
So they do not take in any more carbon-14, but the amount of carbon-14 they already have starts decaying. So when you measure the amount of carbon-14 in a dead object, you can calculate how long ago that object died. And that is true. Carbon-14, believe it or not, is the creationist friend. And when you properly understand carbon-14, you can see it does actually make sense. The amount of measurable carbon-14 goes down, and we can use that to give an estimate of the age. There are a few problems with it, which are, you know, we could discuss another time, but I'm not going to go into the problems just yet. Here's the thing. The half-life of carbon-14 is just less than 7,000 years. That, again, does not mean that I believe... Sorry, it's just less than 6,000 years. Just less than 6,000 years. The half-life of carbon-14 is a statistical measurement. I think it's 5,937, something like that. Here's the key, though. When you have 10 half-lives... So if the half-life of carbon-14 is about 6,000 years, 10 half-lives would be 60,000 years. But statistically, you can show that 10 half-lives would leave you with such a small amount it couldn't be measured, a negligible amount. So 10 half-lives is your maximum. In other words, carbon dating cannot ever measure anything older than 60,000 years. Now, I am not saying that the Earth is 60,000 years old. I'm telling you that carbon-14 dating could not measure anything above 60,000 years. So when people say that a, a fossil has been carbon dated at 65 million years, no, it hasn't. It's not possible. It's not possible. I'm just looking at the clock here. How long, when am I supposed to stop this talk, Jim? I better check. 9.30, that's what I thought. So I will quickly wind up in a moment. It is important. Okay, so it isn't possible to measure the age of a fossil by that method. 60,000 years is your maximum. You can perhaps stretch it to 100,000 years. That's about it. So, of course, diamonds should never have carbon-14 in. These diamonds here have been dated by potassium-argon dating as being 1 to 2 billion years old. By the way, I love the fact that you can have a 50% error rate there, 1 billion to 2 billion, give or take, you know, the odd Tuesday. <laughs> However, even if we take the lowest age, 1 billion years, that is too old for carbon-14 to be there. In other words, there should be no carbon-14 in those diamonds, but there is. They give a carbon-14 dating, carbon dating of 58,000 years. How is that possible? It's because there's so many different assumptions, and they don't tell you this in the textbooks, you see. They only give you the figures that work for them. They don't give you the figures that don't work for them. Does this make sense? And too many science teachers in public schools do not actually know enough science because they learned science when they were at university 20 years ago and they haven't kept up to date. It's true. It's true. I began teaching in 1983 and I was handed a biology syllabus by the, uh, uh, by the head of biology, which required, which was suggesting that I should teach children about, um, embryonic recapitulation, that the process by which embryos go through in, uh, in their, um, uh, in the mother's womb, uh, is a recapitulation of evolution. Now, whether you're going to believe that or not, that's a bunny trail, which I'm not going to go into, but I'm going to tell you that that was based on fraudulent pictures, which were proved to be fraudulent in the early 1950s. 30 years later, in 1983, I was being handed a syllabus that still had that in. What's worse, I have seen an, an American biology textbook dated 2009 that still has the same pictures in it. And it's been proved wrong and all false and shown to be a fraud from the 1950s. 
All these years later, they're still using it because the science teachers are not up to date. Some of them are following what their science teachers taught without really much research. Scientists tell you the earth is billions of years. Take my word for it. God tells us I created the world in six days. Take my word for it. Who are you going to believe? God says in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. And remember, all scripture is inspired by God. But if we can take one part of scripture as being even more inspired than any other, if that were logically possible, which it isn't, but if we could... This is part of the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments were not only inspired, they were inscribed by God. They were inscribed by God, written into the tablets with the finger of God. Okay? Very important point indeed. Too many pastors, however, have not actually studied this, and because they've been told by scientists the earth is billions of years old, they're just going to add that to the Bible. They're going to add it to the Bible, and it becomes a side issue. So let me show you how the Bible's calculation works, and I'll finish off with this. This biblical calculation works, and I may have to steal five minutes. I'm sorry, but I may have to just overrun five minutes and show you this. I can give you some genealogies from the Bible which have numbers in them. The genealogies in Genesis 5 you are all very familiar with, aren't you? So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. It's very good bedtime reading. It'll send you to sleep quickly. It's there because it's true. It's not there because it's interesting. It's there because it's true. Okay? And we're going to learn something from it. There was also half of Genesis 11 also has these figures in, for figures after the flood. So I've used an Excel spreadsheet. You love Excel, don't you? Let's bring Excel. Let's bring, my, you know, part of the rest of my career after leaving teaching was in uh, doing ICT applications. So here's one, Excel. Let's use this. I've taken all the figures showing, because Adam's son Seth was born when Adam was 130. Seth's son Enosh was born when Enosh was 105. Enosh's son Canaan was born when Enosh was 90. And so we can plot these things in an Excel spreadsheet. You don't have to copy these figures down. They are there in the book, by the way, The Six Days of Genesis, of which you've all got a free copy. It's there in the last section of that book, so you can look at this this table up. Let me put those into a bar chart then. So these are the ages of the patriarchs. And if there are no gaps in these uh, genealogies... And I'm going to suggest that there aren't. If there are no gaps, this is interesting because the date of the flood then should come as 1,656 years AM, Anno Mundi, the year of the world. In other words, years after creation. That means that Methuselah died the very same year that the flood came. His son Lamech predeceased him. He died a little earlier. But Methuselah died in 1,656. Why is that important? I'll tell you why. Who was Methuselah's father? Methuselah's father was Enoch. We don't know a lot about Enoch, but we know a little bit more about him than the other patriarchs. For example, we know he was a prophet. We know there's a quotation of his prophecy given in the book of Jude. And by the way, I am not here endorsing the um, apocryphal book of Enoch, which also contains the same words. I do believe that much of the book of Enoch is in error, and I do not suggest we use that to take any theology from. But I am going to use those words that are in inspired scripture, which are in the book of Jude, okay? They must have been said by Enoch, and they're actually talking about um, uh, destruction to come. Well, that destruction would appear to be the flood. Enoch was prophesying about the flood, I'm going to suggest. And that his, prophet, his prophecy led to his naming of his son, because the name Methuselah means his death shall bring it about. 
His death shall bring it about. He's prophesied about uh, a destruction coming, which was the flood coming, and he named his son, his death shall bring it about. And so Methuselah died, and the same year the flood came. You see the significance of that. If there were gaps in those genealogies, as some people believe, even some creationists believe, that would not work. And that's why I think there's no gaps, and that's why we can use these figures in an Excel spreadsheet. There are the ages of the patriarchs before the flood, the date, the, the year they died. They are more or less constant, with the exception of Lamech, whose name means weary. He died at the very young age of 777. Enoch, of course, didn't die. He was translated. He was taken straight to be with God at the age of 365. But after the flood, you'll notice that the ages decay in an exponential decay curve. And that, again, is an indication that there cannot be any gaps in the genealogies after the flood in Genesis 11, because if there were, that wouldn't work. And yet one other piece of evidence that there are no gaps is because of the names of the patriarchs. Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Canaan means sorrow, Mahalalel means the God who is to be praised, Jared means he shall come down, Enoch means teacher or teaching, Methuselah means his death shall bring it about, Lamech means weary, Noah means rest. There is a list of these names. Yes, they're in Genesis 5, but they're also at the beginning of First Chronicles, chapter 1, the first three verses, where you just got a list of names. It reads very strange. You open the first book of Chronicles and you read Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, and you think, what's he saying? What on earth is he doing this for? And then when you look at this, you realize that it actually reads as a sentence that man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the God who is to be praised shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the weary rest. It's a statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's there in the names of the first ten patriarchs. And once again, it wouldn't work if there were gaps in the genealogies. This only works if you believe the Bible is true, that those early chapters of Genesis are literally true. And you think this is not about preaching to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is. By the way, if you want that, that's also in the back of the six days of Genesis. It's there. Okay, You don't need to scribble this down fast. It's there. So let me just finish with this. Because if that's the case, it means that we can actually make a biblical timeline. Starting from the creation of the world, we know then that um, Adam, uh, sorry, Seth was born 130 years later. Enosh was born 235 years after the, after the creation of the world. We're just adding these numbers together, and we eventually come to Noah being born 1,056 years after creation. And, of course, the flood came when Noah was 100 years old. So the flood came uh, um, 1,656 years after creation. Shem was born sh- shortly before the flood, 1,558 years. And that's the date of the flood. So we've got up to the flood. We can actually date the flood from the beginning of creation by that method. Then we'll go beyond cre- uh, the flood. Uh, Arfaxad, by the way, I know a lot of young people who are having, um, young Christian people who uh, have babies, um, uh, young Christian couples, when you're married, you have a baby, and you want to give biblical names to your children quite often in churches. Um, and here are some options. I don't know how many Arfaxad, baby Arfaxads there are in the room. But, you know, maybe that's a name you want to consider, or maybe you want to call your son Salah. Um, um, just a thought. <laughs> Let's add those numbers together, and eventually you get to the fact that 
Abraham was born 2008. By the way, you say there, hold on, it says Terah was 130 years old. I calculate that from a few other verses of Genesis, going into Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. I know in Genesis 11, it says when uh, Terah was 70 years old, he had Abraham, Nahor, and, Te- and um, Haran. But that actually is a way that the uh, that uh, the Hebrew people did that. The first name is not necessarily the oldest. You know that, don't you? The first name is the, is who they consider to be the most important, and they're tracking the descent of Abraham. So it's likely that Abraham was actually the youngest of the three sons of Terah, not the oldest. So um, uh, the age of seventy in uh, in Genesis eleven must be the age that ne- uh, that. Um, Terah's son, another Nahor, the first Nahor's grandson, was born. And uh, we can do that by back calculation from Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. So Abraham left Haran when he was 75 years old. So uh, leaving Haran was in the year 2083 years after creation. Well, now we move on a bit further and we find out that uh, the, uh, there was a sojourn in Egypt of 430 years. And here's where some of us might part company and it won't matter. And I'll show you why. I happen to believe that the 430 years uh, between uh, the, four, the 430 years of the sojourn until the Exodus are numbered from the date that Abraham received the covenant. In which case. That means that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for just 215 years. Okay? Some of you in the room, for good, sound, biblical reasons, will say, No, Paul, I disagree with you. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for that full 430 years. In which case, we disagree by 215 years, not millions of years, just 215. So when I reach my final answer, you can add 215 to it, and you'll see that my point still remains the same. Are you all right with that? So if you disagree with me on that point, you can put an extra 215 years, and it will not worry me in the slightest, okay? Then Solomon built the temple 479 years after the Exodus. So that's the date that I get for the building of the temple. Then the kingdom was divided 37 years after that. So the division of the kingdom into the kingdom of Israel and Judah was in the year 3029 after creation. And then Jerusalem was destroyed 390 years after that. So Jerusalem was destroyed 3419 years after creation. But we've got another date for that, which is a documentary date, not a carbon dating date, not not a uranium dating date, a documentary date, which is that the destruction of Jerusalem was 584 BC. Okay? So all we need to do is add 584 to the 3,419 we've calculated, and we get the answer 4,003. In other words, uh, the earth was created in the year 4003 BC. You may know that the famous uh, Anglican Archbishop, Archbishop James Usher, calculated the date of creation as being 4004 BC. Why does he get a year different from me? Simply because he thought there was a zero AD. And there wasn't. There wouldn't have been a year zero AD. You would go from 1 BC to 1 AD. There was no zero AD. Okay? But, uh, so I'm adding that to 2020, I get that the age of the earth is 6,023 years. Now, if you want to add 215 to that, that's fine, that, uh, that doesn't alter my point. Are you okay with that? Not only that, but I could add about another 100 to it. Because there's an error in each, uh, in, there's an error possibility in every single addition I've made. Adam was 130 when Seth was born. born. Was Seth born on Adam's 130th birthday, or was he born the day before Adam's 131st birthday? 
And you've got that in every case. So you've got a possible possibility of adding an extra year. An extra year. That would, uh, so let's say you've added your 215 to that. So you've got an answer now that's approaching, let's just estimate it, 30, uh, 40, uh, could be 6,240 years, near enough. Uh, you could add another, let's, add, let's be really generous, add another 200. So that could be 6,440. That's, uh, that's your maximum age you could get with the Bible that we have. Now, I think there are very, very strong reasons why the Masoretic text of the Old Testament is correct, which is what all our modern translations and the King James Version are taken from. But if you wanted to use the Septuagint numbers instead, you there is an extra 600 years they have because of what I think are errors, but it's not big. So that could bring the, t- the age to round about just over 7,000 years if you're going to take the Septuagint figures. I wouldn't. I think they're in error. But if you want to use the Septuagint figures, you can bring the age of the earth to 7,000. But there's no way you can bring it to 10,000. you with me? No way at all you can bring it to 10,000. You'd have to add at least 3,000 years, and I would suggest another 4,000 years. So... That is basically your age of the earth, calculated from the Bible, the word of God. And you think, well, why is it so complicated? Because clearly the Bible couldn't put in it a date as such, because it's got to be meaningful to all cultures throughout the world. This method is meaningful to all cultures and works. But remember, if you're going to accept what scientists say about the six days, you're going to have to accept what scientists say about Jesus' miracles, which is this. that Obviously, nobody scientifically could be born of a virgin. Nobody could possibly turn H2O into C2H5OH. Nobody could walk on water because gravity would pull them through. Nobody could calm weather conditions, not even by reducing fossil fuels. Nobody could raise the dead, and nobody could rise from the dead themselves. And do you know what? I believe Jesus did all those things. Every one of them. I believe it because it's in the Bible. And there are lots of people who disagree with what I say on Genesis who say, yeah, I believe that. And you say, why? Were you there to watch it? They say, no, but it's in the Bible. Well, so is creation. You better believe it because it's in the Bible and it matters. And if you're going to believe in millions of years, you've got to fit them into those six days somewhere. There isn't anywhere to fit them into those six days. Uh, you've got to accept what the Bible says on those particular matters. So, just in conclusion at this point, I've given you all those figures then for how um, how we can calculate the age of the earth, and I've even put them in a separate book uh, called the uh, the six uh, called the the how uh, the biblical age of the earth. But here's the thing: if you're going to believe what uh, the uh, people tell you about the millions of years, then you have to believe this: God finished creation by saying everything is very good. But actually, if there were millions of years of evolution, then there was death and disease. There are dinosaur fossils that have been found with brain tumors in them. I saw one in the um, uh, the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. A skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus where there was a brain tumor clearly visible in the fossil skull. In that case, you see, God said that the world is very good, but it wasn't very good at all. God was lying. Do you believe that God's lying? Because if you're going to have to accept long days of creation, if you're going to have to accept millions of years, you're going to have to believe that God is a liar. But God's word is what tells us the truth. That should be our presupposition. 
That is our presupposition, the correct presupposition on which we base everything else. So I'm going to finish with a quote from Martin Luther. In Martin Luther's day, he had a similar problem. It wasn't that people in his day thought the days of creation were long ages. It's that they thought the days of creation were allegorical, but God had actually created everything in an instant. But it's still a problem. It's still not believing the six days of creation. And he said this. He said, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days. Do not venture to devise any comments according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.